Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Joan Stewart, President Emerita of Hamilton College. As a trustee and former fellow of the center, I'm pleased to serve as your host for this episode. After the reign of Emperor Constantine, the century, Rome became more than the great capital of the ancient world. It became a center of the Christian faith. The transformation could be seen in many ways, including in poetic inscriptions on churches and other buildings and monuments throughout the city, public testaments to Rome's renewal as a city of martyrs and a destination for pilgrims. Our guest today is Dennis Trout from the Department of Ancient Mediterranean Studies at the University of Missouri. This year, as the fellow at the center, Dennis has been working on the first interdisciplinary study of these inscriptions and has been considering the cultural changes of which they were a part in the late ancient era. Welcome, Dennis. Thank you. Dennis, I'm very glad to talk with you today. I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about how you became interested in this subject. My interest in the epigraphic culture of late ancient Rome really began quite early as an undergraduate and then as a graduate student. But in particular, it was um, my introduction to Paulinus of Nola, who was the subject of my, uh, my dissertation and then my first monograph, that alerted me to the, the number of epigraphic texts, poetic epigraphic texts, that were really quite understudied. Paulinus was a bishop, um, priest, and then a bishop in Nola, Campania in, in central Italy, and was the impresario uh, of a cult of Saint, uh, Saint Felix, and built a church there, a basilica complex that was replete with verse inscriptions. That was my introduction to the practice of inscribing poetry on church walls, and that led me eventually to um, back to Rome, where there's a treasure trove of these kinds of texts. So, Dennis, these inscriptions are on the insides of the monuments or on the outsides? The majority of those that uh, survive, and that's a topic we might want to talk about as well, is how they survive. Uh, the majority of those that survive were actually inside churches, typically in the apse area or on what's often called the triumphal arch of the church, that arch that separated the nave from the transept and looked into the apse of the church. So typically they are uh, within the church, but not exclusively within the church. And the other great venue for the uh, inscription of poetry were the, were the Roman catacomb shrines. So we have inscriptions both outside the old third century walls of the city and inside the third century walls of the city. It, Dennis, I'm particularly curious about how legible these inscriptions were. Mm -hmm. Someone walking through the city or walking through a church, passing in front of a shrine, would that person's attention have been called to these inscriptions? Would they have been easy to read? Was the print large enough? Were they bright enough? Yeah, Joan, that's a really good question. And legibility comes in a couple of forms. One that you've certainly alluded to is whether you could actually physically read the texts. Uh, if they're inside churches, they're, they could be in dark spaces. They could be very high up on a wall, and many of them are if they're in an apse area. So I've done my own kind of walk around places where we can still see some that are essentially in situ and convinced myself that in terms of physical legibility, they were legible. Church interiors tended to be, at least on occasion, fairly well lighted. But the other question about legibility is 
who could read them and make sense of them. I mean, inscribed words have power just by being inscribed, even if they're not legible to viewers, they carry a certain amount of authority, but the real trick is to be able to read the text itself and make sense of it in some way as poetry. So that's a different kind of legibility. Then we're talking about you know, levels of education required to access the poetry, to make sense of the poetry, to interpret the poetry. Some of these are fairly sophisticated. They're highly elusive to classical poetry and they anticipate or they expect fairly well-educated readers. So uh, that reading audience may be a very, very small percentage, 5%, best perhaps the viewership of folks who might have might see these recognize them as words written on a wall and often in gold lettering against blue backgrounds which gives them a kind of cultural authority but the people who could actually decipher them and read them in the, in the more narrow sense but i do think you go back to another aspect of your question i do think that they were quite attractive. Uh, they were often part of a, a narrative scene or a figural scene. They're embedded in, in mosaics in some cases that are colorful, that are glittery. So the words themselves have a, a kind of power of attraction just as aesthetic objects, I suppose. Can you give us an example of a specific inscription where it might have been and what it said? how long it was? Sure. I mean, for people who go to the city today and would like to track some of these down, there are a couple still in situ, in place, uh, more or less original in church apses. Two of my favorites um, are the Church of Cosmos and Damien, which is right off the Roman Forum, a beautiful church uh, with a fantastic mosaic, early 6th century, a period of uh, the Pope Felix IV. And then the other one is a bit further out from the center of the city along the Via Nomentana, is the church of St. Agnes or St. Agnese, who were a Lemur outside the walls. And there's a church there from the seventh century built by Pope Honorius that still has its original apse mosaic, which is a spectacular apse mosaic. And the, the epigraphic verse runs around the bottom of the apse conch. And it's, this is the one that's, they're both quite legible, but in the Honorian church, you're actually standing on the same level that ancient viewers stood. So you can recreate the experience of being an ancient reader. In Cosmos and Damien, the floor has been raised, so you're much closer to the apse than an original viewer would have been. You said earlier that the story of how some of them survived is, is an interesting story. Yeah, I, mean, it's, I guess it's clear from what I've, what I've been saying that there are few of these that you can visit today and, and have the experience of being an ancient viewer. There are a few others, but uh, majorities are preserved, uh, not physically any longer, but they're preserved because travelers to the city, particularly in the early Middle Ages, copied them down and they found their way into manuscript traditions. So they'll be in anthologies of Latin poetry from the Carolingian period, or some of them are actually anthologies of verse inscriptions from the city of Rome. So we have to rely largely on what early medieval copyists put down for information on many of them, which leads to a lot of problems on establishing authenticity, establishing the text that was originally there, which can, may have become corrupted through manuscript transmission. Many of them require still a lot of fundamental work to verify readings and verify authenticity. But without those early medieval travelers and pilgrims who copied them down, it would all be lost. So uh, we owe them a great debt. <laughs> Dennis, could you tell us a little bit more about what purposes these inscriptions are intended to serve mm. and how they might 
uh, have reflected what was happening in the Roman Empire at the time. Yeah, and this is what ultimately is valuable. I mean, they, for philologists or epigraphists uh, or architectural historians, they're part of a complex monumental landscape. But for the cultural historian, in a way, what's really fascinating about them is the answer to the question, the answers to the question you just asked. They served a number of purposes, typically, again, because they're related to churches, or those churches are themselves related to the saints, whether it's St. Peter or St. Agnes or the saints Cosmos and Damien. So the epigrams tend to tell us something about how people understood the saints to whom these cults are accredited and the sort of devotional aspects of what it meant to visit those kinds of churches. They're also narrative. They tend to encapsulate very, very laconically, I suppose, something about the life of the saints involved as Cosmos and Damien or Agnes. And then they also honor or commemorate the work of typically the bishop um, pope of Rome, the pope who was responsible for the inscription or for the work on the church or that even the building of the church that, that houses the inscription. So they're commemorative, they're honorific, they're devotional, they fill a wide range of categories, I suppose. And I think that what they also do is offer a sophisticated literary entry point into the cult of the saints. Um, because of their very rich literary textures for many of them. Um, and the typical length of one of these inscriptions? Yeah, typically they run they run from eight to 12 lines. Um, some are longer, but uh, generally they're in that neighborhood. So a lot has to be done. There's the economy of these texts is amazing. I tend to think of them as like, compare them to like a two minute pop song. You've got to do a lot in, in two minutes in a pop song because early Beatles have <laughs> 45s, you know? And they're also, they also <laughs> like those early Beatles 45s tended to be fairly thematically pointed, right? And concentrated around particular kinds of themes and repetitive language. So it's the variation on the repetitions that kind of is the way that particular poets or, or popes, if they patronize poets and didn't write them, which, which is an interesting question, that they are anonymous in a sense. They are largely credited to the bishops, the popes, uh, responsible for them. And I think in some cases, I'm sure, popes were also authors. In others, uh, it may well be they had ghostwriters. This was a period of transformation Indeed. in the empire. How do these inscriptions reflect the transformations that were taking mm -hmm. place? The period beginning with you know, Constantine in the early fourth century and proceeding down through my study goes down to the early seventh century. So it's about, about three centuries. This is a period that's been variously understood over the last 200 or 300 years as a, one of decline and fall and a kind of Gibbon-esque way. We've learned to think of it differently in the last half century, largely because of the work of Peter Brown uh, as one of, of both renewal in some ways and, and transformation, uh, not just uh, one of decline and degradation. So one way I think that I found helpful uh, to consider it is through the sort of lens of certain cultural anthropological positions uh, like Clifford Garrett's and thinking of the symbolic value of, of poetry in particular in this case. Much of this poetry draws on the legacy of the traditions established in the early empire by poets like Virgil and Ovid. It uses the same poetic techniques that Virgil used in the Aeneid or Ovid used in his, his poetry. It's hexameters, elegiac couplets. So it's very familiar territory in terms of its technology for most classicists uh, who, who've been trained to read Virgil and Ovid and Horace and Statius and, and other poets of the early empire. 
where it's different is in content. Um, this content is not the epics of the past or the, the myths of the ancient gods. Its content is the lives of the saints and the Christian theology. So it's a very interesting kind of combination of old ways of writing poetry with new ways of thinking about, about what that poetry can do. So I believe it very much epitomizes the tensions between past and present, between classical and Christian Rome uh, that are one of our primary ways, I think, of understanding how cultures change in this period. So here uh, you have a project that has to do with poetic traditions, as you were saying, the evolution of poetry with memory, the, the past and the present, and also with the topography of the city, since the poetry itself if I've understood this correctly, helps to define the cityscape. Very much, very much. I think what you sort of put your finger on, Joan, is that it's very much a multimedia exhibit in a way. You know, we think we call these epigrams, but they're inscribed epigrams, so they're visual, they're monumental. Um, they are related to studies of topography, the, the, how, the, how a city becomes a, a Christian city, really. The, there are questions here about how you move from a pre-Christian city to a Christian city and what that means in terms of sacred landscapes. Um, there are questions about visual culture and how the imagery that fills an apse draws on classical motifs, but repurposes those classical motifs to express Christian ideology. So this poetry very much is aligned with the same kinds of questions of, or issues about, about language, whether that language is visual or whether it's textual language, and how that language gets transposed into, into a world where it's used to send different kinds of messages, where it's adjusted, manipulated, adapted, rejected, all kinds of ways that poets as well as visual artists respond to the classical past to either update it or reject it for their contemporary audience to send different messages. Scholars of Roman history and architecture have been aware of these inscriptions for a very long time, but no one has ever examined them the way you're doing in this in this intense interdisciplinary way. Why is that? Why have they escaped that kind of um, intense scrutiny? I think there are more people now interested in seeing them maybe holistically as a word we could use, but traditionally, historically, um, they've kind of fallen between the cracks. Um, they have been approached by epigraphers because they are inscriptions, and epigraphers haven't very much been interested in, in them as poetry. Uh, they have been approached by our historians because they're part of a visual field, but our historians have not been so much interested in them as poetry. And they've seldom been approached by classical uh, literary scholars because late ancient poetry was often off the table. That's no longer the case, but there has been interest in them, but the interest has been fragmented. So I think what I'm trying to do and what others are trying to do is to, is to see bring those images back into, into focus in some way to see them all at once simultaneously from a number of different perspectives. The challenge is that it requires wearing a lot of different hats and being competent, or at least semi-competent in a number of different sub-disciplines, topography, art history, classical poetry. And so it's slow going. <laughs> well, it's a wonderful, unexpected, complicated story that you're telling, Dennis. I very much appreciate your having shared some of it with us. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. And I want to thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center.